The following message, entitled, Together on a Mission, part four of the series, Together, was given by Stephen Altrogi on the 21st of October, 2012, at Sovereign Grace Church of Indiana, Pennsylvania. To learn more about our church, please visit sgcindianapa.org. Good morning, everyone. My name's Stephen. I'm one of the pastors here. Thanks for being here this morning. If you could turn in your Bibles to the book of Matthew, chapter 28. Matthew, chapter 28. Today we are finishing up our series that we have called Together. And the title of this morning's message is Together on a Mission. How many of you have have seen the Mission Impossible movies that have been released in recent years? Okay, decent number. Well, there's a, a common theme that run through, well, there's several common themes that run through all the Mission Impossible movies. And first of all, there's Tom Cruise, who in almost every scene is doing one of two things, either sprinting full speed or standing and looking off into the distance as the wind rustles his hair and a tear trickles down his cheek. That's, that's pretty much Tom Cruise's sole role in those movies. So there's Tom Cruise... There is, there's always car explosions, car chases, high-tech gadgets, evil villains, really evil villains, and then government officials who are actually really, really evil villains. And inevitably, in every, in every movie, I think, I'm trying to remember through all, there's four of them now, I think. In every movie, there's one scene where... In slow motion, Tom Cruise dives across a doorway with two pistols and is firing both pistols simultaneously. It's like Tom Tom always says, all right, so is this the part where I go diving across the doorway? And like, that's later, Tom, that's later. But the main theme that, there's uh, the, the big theme that runs through every single movie is that there is always a mission. And the mission is what unites the team. Tom Cruise always has a team around him, and once they are given their mission, they are suddenly galvanized into action. Once they receive their mission, they start making plans, they look at schematics, they get all sorts of high-tech gadgets that could never possibly exist in real life, but they have. Uh, they, they gather the right weapons. Tom Cruise gives an inspirational speech, and they're suddenly, all their attention, all their focus, all their planning is how are we going as a team to unite together to accomplish this mission. And each person is given a specific task. Each person is called to a specific part of the mission. And they're willing to die to fulfill their mission. Because the mission is what matters most to them. The mission is everything. And for us as Christians were also called to unite and gather around a certain mission. We've been given a mission by Jesus. We've been given a mission by Jesus that is supposed to launch us together into action. Jesus has given us a mission that's supposed to unite us together and then launch us forward into action, and it's a mission we're called to individually, but we can't fulfill it individually. We're called to ultimately fulfill it together. So let's look at Matthew chapter 28, 
verses 18 to 20. Jesus calls, he's called all his disciples together. This is after he has been crucified and raised from the dead. And Jesus came to them and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now here's the mission. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And we need to regularly be reminded that we are on a mission. And it's not just an individual mission. We are all together. You and I together are on a mission together. And so Jesus, He didn't save us for inaction. He saved us for action, for a mission. And He gave this mission first to His disciples, and then He gave this mission in turn to us. And our mission as Christians together is to make disciples for Jesus. And what that means, what it means to make disciples is first to tell people about Jesus and about the fact that He died for their sins and rose again and is seated on high. And then once they believe that glorious good news and their sins are forgiven, then to help them learn what it means to follow Jesus. And all of us are called to this mission. All of us are called to do this together. This is our mission as a church, and we as a church are to be united around this mission. This is my mission. This is your mission. This is our mission together. And we're united together on this mission. We need each other for this mission. Now the question is, how exactly do we fulfill the mission? What do we do? Because you notice Jesus doesn't exactly spell it out. What do we do? How do we fulfill the mission? How do we as a church do it? How do you and I do it personally? Those are the questions that we're going to look at in Scripture this morning. But before we do, let's pray together and ask that God would impress this on our heart. Lord, thank You for saving us. Thank You, Lord, for forgiving our sins and washing our sins away and adopting us into Your family, Father. And Father, thank You for giving us a mission. And Lord, I ask that this morning, Lord, that You would cause it to weigh on us this morning, Father. That our passion for Your mission would burn in our hearts, Father. That You would stir us up. I need to be stirred up. We all need to be stirred up. Stir us up again for Your mission, Lord. Because, Lord, we need You to empower us to do this. We can't do this on our own. We're dependent on You. Thank You, Father. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, how do we fulfill the mission? We've been given the mission. Go into all the world. Make disciples. Great. Now what? We're going to look at three ways this morning. And usually what what we do is we tend to take a passage and work our way through the passage one verse at a time, but this morning we're looking at a bigger overview of the mission. So I'm gonna, we're going to go to a couple of different passages this morning. And the first way we fulfill our mission together is we fulfill our mission with our words. And so if you could turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul talks about his mission. 
1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 4. He says this. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preach to you, which you receive, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believe in vain. For I deliver to you as of first importance. That's important. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. The thing that is of first importance for us as a church, for you, for me, for our mission, is the message that Jesus Christ lived a sinless life. The Son of God lived a sinless life and then died in our place and took the wrath of God for our sins and then was raised again to new life by God and is now seated on high in heaven. And this is the center of our mission and this is the center of what we will always proclaim. We never want to move away from this message. We've, We've heard this message many, many times, but we never want to move away from this message because this is the message This is the most glorious message in history. That our sins can be forgiven and we can have a right relationship with the living God. And proclaiming this message to others is the center of our mission. So what should we do with this message? Well, we have the message. What do we do with it? We tell others of the message. We spread it. We tell these truths to other people. Our mission as a church... And your mission and my mission is to tell others about the wonderful good news of salvation. We must tell people. We must speak these words to people. And it's not enough, it's not enough to just be a nice, loving, kind person who has a fish on the back of your car. That's not enough. We've got to tell people with words about what Jesus did. Because if people don't hear the message, then they can't believe in Jesus. And if they can't believe in Jesus, then they're going to be punished in hell for their sins. And as Christians, you and I, if we've believed in Jesus, as Christians, we have the most incredible, glorious news that ever in the history of the universe. We are in possession of it. And we need to let others know about it. We know the way to have peace with God. We know the way to have a clean conscience. We know the way to have a relationship with the living God. Isn't that a wonderful message? And we need to tell our friends, our coworkers, fellow students, we need to tell others about it. They need to hear it. They desperately need to hear it. And say, for example, you were a scientist. If you discovered a cure for cancer, you would tell you would want to tell everybody about it. You'd be like telling all your friends. You'd be on TV, on the, in the newspaper, on the radio. You'd be posting it to Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. People wouldn't be able to shut you up about it because you would be so excited about what you have. The, the, the news you have. I have the cure. And as wonderful as that cure would be, we have something even more wonderful. 
We have the cure for spiritual cancer. Most people don't even know they have spiritual cancer. They don't know that apart from Jesus, they will go to hell. And we need to tell them about the cure. First, we need to tell them about the disease. Then we need to tell them about the cure. And so the question is, and I need to ask myself this and be challenged myself by this, but are we telling people? Are we telling people about the cure, about Jesus Christ? And listen to the energy in Paul's voice. Flip in your Bible to 2 Corinthians 5.20. Listen to the, the energy and the intensity and the pleading in Paul's voice in this verse. You can just feel it pouring off the page. It says, therefore, he's talking about himself and his mission to proclaim the gospel. He says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. You feel the passion in his heart. He so desperately wants people to know this. He says, we implore you to believe this. Be reconciled. Be made right with God. And the question is, does our heart beat with that same passion and intensity as Paul does? And I confess, so often mine doesn't. And every day I'm surrounded by people who don't know Jesus. When I go to the grocery store, when I'm out with my neighbors. And yet, there's so many times I'm aware of where I don't seem to care. And so, I want to do two, personally, I want to do two things this week, and I want to encourage you to do these two things too. First, let's ask God to give us His passion for the mission. This week, just say, Lord, would you please burden me? with your passion for the mission. Would you please burden me for people? For my coworkers or students or wherever you find yourself, Lord, would you burden me for these people? And then let's pray that God would bring people, that God would open doors, that, that God would put people on our heart, and maybe you, you probably already have people on your heart, but that God would put people on our heart that we can be praying for that God would open a door for us to share the good news with them. Let's pray that God would give us opportunities. Let's pray, pray that God would bring people to us asking questions, that God would bring people into our path who we can tell about Jesus. And can I also encourage you, invite people to church. I, sometimes, you know, during the week, we don't always have the right opportunity to just tell somebody about Jesus. It's, it's not always easy when you're on the job or when, whenever, when you're at school but you can be assured that every Sunday, we make it a point. This is very intentional. We make it a point to put the gospel into what we preach. So that if someone comes here, they will hear about Jesus Christ, our Savior. And so one way that we together can do evangelism, first we tell people ourselves individually, then we invite people to come and to hear the message of salvation. So invite people. You could invite people to the Bible studies before church. You could invite people to the Thursday night classes. And they'll hear about Jesus. And we can be assured that when people hear, 
And when we speak the message of Jesus Christ dying and raising again for our sins, we can be assured that God will use it. Sometimes it can be discouraging, can't it, when you, you've either talked to someone a number of times in the past or you're trying to talk to someone, and it seems like nothing is happening. I've told them this before, and they're still, you know, nothing is happening. They're saying, yeah, that's nice for you, but that's not for me. It can be discouraging. It can feel like, well, why am I even doing this? It can seem like God isn't doing anything in that person. But we can know that whenever we share the gospel, God works powerfully. Look at Romans 1.16. This is an encouraging verse. Paul says in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? For... It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it's the power of God. And so we can know that when we tell people about Jesus, we may not be able to see it. We don't know what God is doing. But the gospel is a message that God uses powerfully. And so I just want that to... Let's let that give us faith that God will work when we tell people about Jesus Christ. And I would imagine that there's some of you here in this room who you don't know it, but you have spiritual cancer. Actually, the Bible puts it worse than that. It doesn't just say you're dying. It says that apart from Jesus, you have no spiritual life. And if you have not made Jesus the center of your life, if you have not submitted your life to Jesus and asked Him for forgiveness of sins, then the Bible says you're going to go to hell for your sins and be punished. And so I want to do what Paul did. I just want to ask you and implore you. And I want you to hear God Himself imploring you, please believe in Jesus for salvation. Turn to Him. Give your life to Him. And if you do, your sins will be forgiven. You'll have a clean conscience. You won't be under the wrath of God. And so I'm imploring you, like Paul did, to believe this message because apart from it, you don't have spiritual life. It doesn't matter how religious you are. Apart from Jesus, you have no spiritual life. And so I want to appeal to you to believe in Jesus. And I'd love to talk to you more afterwards if you have questions about that come on down please just talk to me i'd love to talk to you about that because jesus is the cure and you need that cure whether you know it or not you desperately need it and i'm holding it out to you today and god because he loves you is holding it out to you today and so we fulfill our mission first with words we never want to forget that it's not just about love and good deeds there's primarily a message that we share But there are other ways we fulfill our mission. The second way we fulfill our mission is with our love. First with our words, then we fulfill our mission with our love. And initially this can sound kind of weird because it's like, well, how does just loving someone, you know, it sounds pretty mushy. How does just loving someone fulfill the mission? Let's look at John chapter 13, verses 34 to 35. Jesus was talking to his disciples. 
He had gathered them together. And He said to them, He said, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. That you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another. And Jesus, it's, this is kind of amazing. He's gathered all His disciples together and He's saying, look, this is how people are going to know that you are my disciples. This is, what, this is what should be your identifying mark. And it's interesting, he doesn't organize some sort of mass media blitz campaign where we tell everyone we're disciples of Jesus and billboards and social media explosion. He doesn't, he doesn't tell people to do a specific religious ritual or have a mark on their body or wear a specific jewelry. He says the world will know you are my disciples. And by the way, it's not wrong to wear jewelry or anything. That's not the point I'm making. But what he says is, what he says is, the way the world will know you are my disciples is this, by the way you love one another. He says, this will be your identifying mark to the world. This is how you will show the world that you belong to me, by the way you love one another. And our love and our affection and our service and our caring and our serving one another are what tell the world that we're Christians and people should look at us and say, there is something distinctly different about that person. That person, he loves people that I don't see how he does that. He's unselfish in ways that I'm not. He gives up himself for others. She gives up her time for others. She genuinely cares about other people and I love it because there's so many of you in this church that do that, but we need to be stirred again. This is what identifies us as Christians. And as I say these words, and even as I was working on this week, I'm, I'm convicted, I am challenged, because one of the primary things that should characterize me, one of the defining marks of my life should be my love for other people, and yet so often I'm selfish, so often I'm more desirous of my own comfort than putting the interests of others ahead of mine. So often I'm self-centered and I'm just asking, Lord, as I, was praying, as I was reading this passage this week, I was just like, Lord, change me. Change my selfishness. Help me grow. And this is something I've been praying for a while. And I have been encouraged. I, I don't want you to be left like there's no hope because you know what? God has been helping me slowly. But I know God is helping me grow and change and He wants to help us all grow in our love and affection for one another. Slowly over the years, God has been increasing my love for other people. And so, some questions just to ask ourselves. Is there anyone in the church, or any fellow Christian, it's not just this church, but any fellow Christian, that you find it difficult to love? I'm sure all of us have some people like that in our life. But we can't allow that. The thing is, some of you are laughing and actually looking at each other. <laughs> You're like, ah, see what he's saying? He's talking about you. See, here's the thing. We can't allow that, though, to go unchecked in our lives. We can't allow an unloving heart towards other people to go unchecked in our lives because 
that our love is what's supposed to be what marks us as Christians. And so we can't love an unloving heart towards someone just fester and grow and be like that. Because one of the the great effects of what Jesus accomplished for us on the cross, one of the wonderful benefits of the Gospel is that it is supposed to unite us. It's supposed to bring together people who would never normally come together, but the Gospel brings us together, and in God's amazing power, He gives us love for one another. That's the incredible thing about the Gospel, and so when we're unloving towards others, we're saying that the Gospel isn't really working. And so I think God would would stir us up to to give us, to just say, Lord, give me love for your people. If there's someone in particular you're struggling with, just say, Lord, Lord, help me. If there's any division between you and someone else, say, Lord, would you please give me affection and love for that person? Would you help me bless that person? Can I encourage you to pray that God would bless that person? Pray for God's blessing upon that person. Go out of your way to bless that person. Because if the world sees us angry at one another or gossiping about one another or backbiting one another or slandering one another, it can say, see, Jesus doesn't really make a difference in their life. That's no different than what goes on in my life. But if the world sees us loving one another, as a, as, if the world sees us gathering together, loving one another, caring for one another, praying for one another, encouraging one another generously blessing one another. They can't ignore that. You can't ignore that. Because only God can do that kind of change in our lives. It absolutely can't ignore that. And I want to read to you this incredible story of love, of world-changing, unignorable, I'm not sure if unignorable is a word, but of love that cannot be ignored. And this is by a woman named Corey Ten Boom. She says, It was in a church in Munich that I saw him. A balding, heavy-set man in a gray overcoat, a brown felt hat clutched between his hands. People were filing out of the basement room where I had just spoken, moving along the rows of wooden chairs to the door at the rear. It was 1947, and I had come from Holland to defeated Germany with the message that God forgives. It was the truth they needed most to hear in that bitter, bombed-out land, and I gave them my favorite mental picture. Maybe because the sea is never far from a Hollander's mind, I like to think that that's where forgiven sins were thrown. When we confess our sins, I said, God casts them into the deepest ocean, gone forever. The solemn faces stared back at me, not quite daring to believe. There were never questions after a talk in Germany in 1947. People stood up in silence, in silence collected their wraps, in silence left the room. And that's when I saw him working his way forward against the others. One moment I saw the overcoat in the brown hat, the next a blue uniform and a visored cap with its skull and crossbones. It came back with a rush. The huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath the parchment skin. Betsy, how thin you were. And then she answered, she said, Betsy and I had been arrested for concealing Jews in our home 
during the Nazi occupation of Holland. And this man had been a guard at Ravensbrück concentration camp where we were sent. Now he was in front of me, hand thrust out. A fine message, Fraulein. How good it is to know that, as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take that hand. He would not remember me, of course. How could he remember one prisoner among those thousands of women? But I remembered him and the leather crop swinging from his belt. I remember face to face. I was face to face with one of my captors, and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk. He was saying, I was a guard there. No, he did not remember me. But since that time, he went on, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there. But I would like to hear it from your lips as well, Fraulein. Again, the hand came out, will you forgive me? And I stood there. I, whose sins had again and again to be forgiven and could not forgive. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but to me it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I had ever had to do. For I had to do it. I knew that. The message that God forgives us has a prior condition, that we forgive those who have injured us, if you do not forgive men their trespasses, Jesus says, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. I knew it not only as a commandment of God, but as a daily experience. Since the end of the war, I had a home in Holland for victims of Nazi brutality. Those who were able to forgive their former enemies were able also to return to the outside world and rebuild their lives, no matter what the physical scars. Those who nursed their bitterness remained invalids. It was as simple and as horrible as that. And still I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will. And the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Help, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that. You supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands, and then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried, with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. Isn't that incredible? That's the kind of love that changes the world. That people cannot ignore. When you see something like that, you say, only God could achieve that. Only Jesus living in us gives us the power to love people who we would not normally love. And this kind of love is attractive because we live in a world that every relationship has been shattered by sin and every dynamic between people has been devastated 
by sin. But when the world sees us caring for one another and loving one another and blessing one another and bearing one another's burdens, they realize that there's something different in us and that something different is Jesus who is the Prince of Peace. And so, let's just be asking God, and you already do this, but let's continue to ask God to give us a deep abiding love for one another that cares for one another and bears one another's burdens because we fulfill our mission and we show the world that Jesus is in us when we love one another. And then the third way we fulfill our mission is not just by our love, but by living holy lives. So flip over to Matthew chapter 5, verse 14 to 16. Jesus said this. He said, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. And the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And I think sometimes, it's funny, when we think about doing good works, um, we almost think like we need to be like sort of like secret agents when we do good works because, I mean, after all, in the Bible, Jesus rebuked the Pharisees for trying to you know, do their good works in front of people. So we go through these incredible, extraordinary measures to make sure no one finds out who did the good work. So if we send money to someone, we use a unmarked envelope that we seal with leather gloves, and then we send it first to Johnstown, then route it through Bolivar, and then it comes back to Indiana, then gets hand-delivered by someone in the church who doesn't know who it originally came from. And the impulse behind that is good. The impulse is, I just want to bless people. I don't want the praise of men. But part of what Jesus was saying is, first he was rebuking the Pharisees for wanting to do good works for the applause of men. He doesn't rebuke them for wanting to do good works. He rebukes them for their motive of, I want the applause, I want the best place at the table. And what Jesus tells us in Matthew 5 is that we should be eager to do good works that the world can see, not so they applaud us, but so that they applaud God. We should be eager to do good works, not so that we receive honor, but so that the world gives God honor. And when we do good works that serve the Lord, it's like letting the light of God shine forth through us into the dark world. And when we do good works, it shows people that God has done an incredible good work in us. Because apart from God, we're selfish. We don't want to do good works. We're self-centered. But when we do good works for the glory of God, it shows the world that there is a real God who changes people. And there's so many of you in this church who do that, and I love it, and first person that came to my mind when I was thinking about this was Frank Frederick, because Frank is, I, I, I don't know if you know Frank, but Frank and I, we, we have a good relationship. First, because we both like the Andy Griffith show, which gives us a lot to talk about. But Frank is always just up here at the church. He's just always doing stuff to, to bless, bless us and bless this church. He's mowing the grass. He's weed whacking. He's walking through the yard, picking up rocks so that it doesn't damage the mower. And he's always cheerful and just thanking and blessing and that's letting your light shine before men. Rodney Allshouse is also always doing 
the same thing. And then there's Andrew and Patty Walwork. Patty sings on the worship team. Andrew serves on the financial team. And both of them serve in children's ministry. And my daughter, Karis, who she was in their class when she was four, she would freak out whenever the Walworks were her teachers because she loved them so much. Uh, now, when you talk to Andrew, he seems like a pretty laid-back, like kind of reserved person. I mean, he's after all, he's a lone review officer. Uh, but it's like when he gets in children's ministry, apparently he turns into Captain Kangaroo or something like that. <laughs> because Karis would come home and she'd be like laughing and telling stories about Mr. Ark being a dinosaur and chasing them. And she loved it. Apparently, Andrew is like Clark Kent somehow. He's like mild-mannered, lone review officer by day, child entertainer extraordinaire by night. And I love that because that's letting, that is letting our light shine before the world, saying that we're going to do good works that bring honor to God. Not for the praise of, of men, but for the honor of God. And I love that because... And there, I, that's just a few examples. I could list so many more. But that's letting our light shine before men. And we also let our light shine by living lives of holiness. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2. <clears throat> In 1 Peter 2, 10 and 11, <clears throat> Peter said, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And we're to live, what this is saying is we are to live lives that are honorable and holy and lives full of righteousness and lives full of obeying God's, God's commands. Why? Well, what it says in this passage is it says that so if someone were to accuse us of being an evildoer, they wouldn't have any grounds to do it because of the honorable conduct of our lives. And our lives are supposed to match up with our profession. We profess to be followers of Jesus, and our lives are supposed to match that. God has called us out of the kingdom of darkness. And we're supposed to live like that. We're supposed to live holy lives that reflect what God has done. And so the question we should be asking from this passage is, would people know by our lives, by our conduct, by our holy lives, that we follow Jesus? Do you and I pursue holiness and integrity and righteousness? Would your coworkers, or if you're a teacher, would your students say, yeah, that, I mean, I can tell there's something, I couldn't put my finger on it, but now that you mention it, yeah, they work like that. And before I was a pastor, I worked at First Commonwealth Bank with Doug Brown, who goes here. And one of the, the things that I so appreciated about Doug was he modeled this verse. He was committed to integrity. He was committed to always working in such a way that people would have no grounds to accuse him. He was committed to working and, and being a light in the office. And I just love that about Doug. I love that about him. He was committed to avoiding gossip and slander in the office. And this should be our attitude just wherever we are, no matter what phase of life you're in. This should be our desire to pursue righteousness and holiness and godly conduct so that when people see us, they say there is something different. And I want what they have. I want it. Because when we live 
lives of holiness, the world notices. And for some people, when God starts working in them, that suddenly becomes attractive to them. And they suddenly start to realize, I want whatever's different about them, I want that. And they ask questions. Why are you different? Why don't you act like the rest of us? Which then allows us to tell them about Jesus at work in us, changing us. And so we fulfill our mission by living holy lives. And so let's pray for each other that God would help us live holy lives. Pray for the members of your care group that God would help them live holy lives. Pray for your kids. Pray for your fellow students. Let's together... Together, pursue holiness. Because we have a mission. You and I together have a mission to make disciples for Jesus. And we do it with our words and with our love and with our lives. And so let's close now by praying that this would happen in us. That God would do this. Let's stand together and I'd like to have the band come up. Let's pray that God would do this in us. That He would help us to live lives of holiness and love, and to speak the message of the Gospel. Lord, thank You for calling us to a mission. Thank You for saving us. Thank You for changing us. Thank You that You're at work in us. Thank You for so many people in this church that I just know You're doing this in them, Lord. And I just ask that You would do it more in us, Lord. Lord, help us. I pray this week, Lord, for all of us, Lord, give us an opportunity to tell someone about Jesus. Lord, I pray for every person that we would all have the opportunity this week to tell someone about this incredible person, Jesus Christ, who has transformed us. And we thank You, Father. We thank You, Lord. We thank You for Your forgiveness. And we pray that that would just overflow out of our lives into love for other people and holy lives. Thank you, Father. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's sing together.